The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down upon the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. One thing, you know, I might as well give this to you. I say this from time to time, and it just came to mind, so let me find it. It's in the book of James. And, uh, you know, there aren't a lot of prophecies in the epistles that speak of things that are coming in the future. But James says something in his epistle, and just for fun, I'm going to take you there. It has nothing to do with the service. But um, let's see here if I can find this very quickly. He talks about the farmer. Um, in uh, Oh, I'm still in Timothy. It always helps to be in the right book. Okay, chapter 5 of the book of James, he says, Therefore, be patient, brethren. Think of, think of Israel today. Be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. What's he saying? saying, remember now, James is after Paul's epistles. Paul's epistles fit into the Bible. I've showed you the structure of the Bible shows us the pattern of redemptive history. Paul's epistles are the church age, and all of a sudden you go into the book of Hebrews. It's written to the Hebrews of the end times. Church is gone. Okay, James is written to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. So we have him writing to these people, and he's saying, wait and see how the farmer waits for the early and the latter rains. Israel didn't have the early and the latter rains for 2,000 years. Why? Because the Romans went in and they destroyed everything. And in order to destroy everything, they cut down all the trees so that they could build siege mounds against the people of Israel and destroy their towns. So there were no trees and the ecosystem ended and there was only one rain a year. There were no latter rains, and this went on for 2,000 years. It was a desolate wasteland, despite what you hear with the Pakistanians making up the stuff that they've always been there. Go read Innocence Abroad by Mark Twain, and he will tell you that exactly how many people lived in the land, what language they spoke, how many of them there were. He'll tell you everything, and he was unbiased. He was just traveling through Paul's journeys, and then he went through the land of Israel. And he, you can read it right online. It tells you everything you need to know about the land of Israel in the 1800s, okay? There was no former and latter rain. And all of a sudden, a group of people moves back into the land, and what do they do? They drain the swamps. They plant trees everywhere. Year on year, they have the highest gain of trees on the planet in that little land of Israel. They're planting forests. And what happens? Here come the second rain of the year. You get the early and the latter rains once again for 2,000 years. And guess what? He ties that in to the coming of the Lord. So we're at the end times here. There is no doubt about it. Israel is in the land, and we are going to be out of the land pretty soon. Can't wait for it. Um, let's see here. We're going to read our verses today from Leviticus chapter 16. I will say this, that there are a few sections of scripture that I have 
talked to the Lord about it, and I've said, Lord, I can't believe that I am allowed to preach on this this passage. One of them was the naming of Israel. I, I can't tell you what that means to me, to be able to have done a sermon on that, the coming out of the Red Sea, the proclamation of the divine name in Exodus chapter 3. All of there, there are certain passages that have so much relevance to not just that moment, but to all of redemptive history, and this is one of them. Leviticus chapter 16 is the center of the book of Leviticus. If you get this wrong, then everything else will be screwed up in your theology. I'm going to tell you that right now. And there's a lot of screwed up theology based on the Day of Atonement. So let's read these passages. It's 16, 1 through 10, and we'll get into the sermon. Leviticus 16, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with the linen turban he shall be attired. These are the holy garments. Therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. And as I've done before each Leviticus sermon of late, I want to read you some passages from the book of Hebrews. Okay? This is speaking about the law of Moses in contrast to the new covenant in Christ's blood. The first passage is from Hebrews chapter 7, it's verse 12. For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant was under the priesthood of Aaron. In order for Christ to be a high priest, he can't be a priest of that, they already have a high priest. There must be a changing of the law. So, The Old Testament or the Old Covenant law, the law of Moses, is done. And now we have a new covenant in Christ's blood. Okay, we'll go to the next one. Hebrews 7.18. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment. The former commandment, meaning the law of Moses, is annulled. In its entirety, without exception, every single part of the law of Moses is annulled. People get panicky about that. But the Ten Commandments are in the law of Moses. Does anybody here... Worship on the Sabbath day. Is today the Sabbath day? There's no such thing as a Sunday Sabbath. The Sabbath day is a Saturday. The law of Moses, including the Ten Commandments, are annulled in Christ. That's what it says in the Bible. Why do we not kill people? Why do we hold to thou shalt not commit adultery? It's because they are repeated in the new covenant. Okay? The old covenant is annulled. Everything in it, including the Sabbath, which is never repeated in the New Testament, is done. Okay, the reason why we don't have a Sabbath day is because of Hebrews 4, verse 3. It says, now we who believe do enter that rest. 
We are in our Sabbath day because Christ is our Sabbath rest, okay? We worship Christ on any day of the week, according to Paul from uh, Romans chapter 14. Some esteem one day over another. Some esteem every day the same. Let each man be convinced in his own mind how he is going to worship the Lord. We choose Sunday at the superior word. Some churches do a Monday service. I know some that do a Thursday service. It doesn't matter. This is the Gentile-led church age, and we worship in spirit and in truth. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. The law of Moses is weak, and it is unprofitable. Okay, chapter 8, verse 13. In that he says a new covenant... New covenant in Christ's blood, right? He has made the first obsolete. And as I say, week after week after week, the word obsolete means that we must do it. We can never give it up. Wrong. It is done. It is fulfilled. It is annulled. It is set aside. And it says in Hebrews 10, verse 9, he takes away the first, the law of Moses, that he may establish the second, which is the new covenant in Christ's blood. And then I have one more that I'd like to read you from Paul. I always add this in, if at all, add in last, because so many people don't want to hear the words of Paul. But it says in chapter 14 of Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 of Colossians chapter 2, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements, meaning the law of Moses, that was against us, which was contrary to us, And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. In other words, Christ is the law. He embodies the law. He fulfilled the law. His body was nailed to the cross. And then he died on the cross, meaning the law died with him. We are now in a new covenant initiated through his precious blood. There you go. There's a heresy which has been brought into the church in a large way in recent years. It is one based on a mistaken belief that the three fall feasts of the Lord... Yom Teruah, or the Day of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, and Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, are yet to be fulfilled by Christ. The logic is that the four spring feasts, Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and Weeks, along with the Sabbath, which we just discussed, were fulfilled in his first advent. And the second three will only be fulfilled in his second advent. The reason that this is a heresy is because it then means that the law of Moses is not fulfilled in Christ. They're a part of the law of Moses, something which is in direct opposition to the last utterance of Christ on the cross. It is finished. The writings of Paul, which I just read you, and many statements in the book of Hebrews, which I just read you. If the law is not fulfilled, then Christ's work was not in fulfillment of the law, and he is not the Messiah spoken of in Scripture. The feasts which are described in Leviticus chapter 23, one of which is the Day of Atonement, are called My Feasts by the Lord. They are not feasts of Israel. They are not Jewish feasts. They are the Lord's feasts and none other. In order to justify that these feasts are not yet fulfilled, scholars who hold to this position will then equivocate on the naming of the feasts, saying that they still apply to Israel of the future. They're feasts of Israel. And I'll show you one if I have it right down here. I had it here. Maybe I don't anymore. I can't find it. Maybe it's over here. Anyway, I've got a set of CDs that somebody gave me. Ah, here they are. Let me hold it up for you wonderful friend of mine who happens to be a missionary gave me these sorry, these uh, 
the fall feasts of the Lord. It's by messianic perspectives. And he says, these are my feasts. And he talks about them. They're fulfilled. He says fulfilled, like real zealously fulfilled. He says like 50 times. And then he gets to the fall feast and he says, they're not fulfilled. They're going to be fulfilled in Christ's second coming. And he changes the name from my feasts, the feasts of the Lord, to the feasts of Israel. That's what we call equivocating. Okay, when they first talk about them, they will say, these are the feasts of the Lord. But when they arrive at the fall feasts, as I just said, they suddenly equivocate on the terminology and they call them feasts of Israel. This is a sleight of hand, which is one, not authorized terminology from scripture. And two, it makes Israel, not the Lord, the focus of the feasts. Our study of Leviticus 16 will show clearly and precisely that this feast is perfectly and wholly fulfilled by Christ Jesus. The Day of Atonement is a feast of the Lord. And so that brings us to proper terminology concerning application of a fulfilled feast. A distinction must be made between a fulfilled feast and a continued application of that feast. A person is born one time, but the application of that birth never ceases. Each day of our life and each birthday celebration is a continued application of our original birth. Such is true with our second birth in Christ. We're only reborn once, but the application of that birth continues on. And so it is true with the work of Jesus. He died one time for sinners of all time. When Israel returns to the Lord, their true day of atonement will be in Christ, just as it was for each individual since his atoning sacrifice. This is a feast of the Lord, not a feast of Israel. Israel as a nation, like each Jew and each Gentile, atoned for during the church age is merely a recipient of the work of the Lord. We cannot equivocate on the meaning of words and sentences and have sound theology. And to substantiate this, it must be noted that Leviticus 16 verse 1 forms a new parasha of the law according to the divisions of the readings by the Jews in the synagogues. A parasha is a portion of scripture which they read each week on the Sabbath day, okay? It's a, it, we'll just call it a portion, all right? This parasha extends through Leviticus 18, so you've got Leviticus 16.1 through Leviticus 18. Its corresponding passage from the prophets is Amos 9, verses 7 through 15. So they read something from the Law of Moses, and they read something from the prophets. And they do this all year, and then they start again at the beginning of the year. James cites that passage in Acts chapter 15 from Amos 9. This shows us that this passage in Leviticus displays in type and in figure Jesus Christ and his work. It is he who is our true high priest who alone entered the Holy of Holies, and who has reconciled the Gentiles to God by his own blood. That same effectual work which was accomplished by him will be realized in national Israel someday in the future. However, the day itself is fulfilled. To state that this is a feast of Israel, looking forward to Israel's atonement of the future, is to say that the law has not yet been fulfilled by Christ. It has Israel is just late catching up to that fact. Understanding this, our text verse for today is James' words to the church from Acts chapter 15. Here's what he says, citing Amos chapter 9. Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. 
After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. James notes that the Gentiles were first visited by God, meaning in Christ, in order to take out of them a people for his name. This is the Gentile-led church age. It is a time in which we now live, and it is based on the completed atoning work of Jesus Christ for us, not on some future event which must take place. Only after this will national Israel be brought into this same saving grace after the church age. The atonement provided by Jesus Christ is a one-time, for-all-time event. If this is not the case, then there is no church age. There is no rapture at the end of the church age, and there is no millennial reign of Christ either. Either Christ died for our atonement, or we are not a body. We will not be admitted into heaven, and Israel will never be accepted by Christ again. It is either finished or we, meaning all people and at all times, have absolutely no hope at all. Having said this, it will become perfectly evident, completely clear, and without argument that this is so when we have finished the verses of this chapter. When the typology presented to be shown is reflected accurately and completely in Christ's work, which is recorded in the New Testament, anyone who sees it will also agree that this is so. How unfortunate it is that people run ahead presenting commentaries which state that these things are yet to be fulfilled. Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. In order to be the end of it, he must be the fulfillment of it. And he is. Praise God, he is. It's all to be found in his precious and superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have only two thoughts for you today. The first is a body you have prepared for me. It's verses 1 through 6. Verse 1, Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. These words are considerably different than the introductory words of most major sections that we've seen in the book of Leviticus. Instead of saying, Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, which is then followed up with the words that he says, This introduction gives a full explanation of when the words are spoken. They take us back to the events of chapter 10, when Aaron's two oldest sons died before the Lord. They then explain exactly what that means with the words, When they approached the face of Jehovah and died. Exactly what this means will be defined in verse 2. Numerous scholars state that because of this introduction being tied back to the events of chapter 10, it was originally placed there, but then later it was moved to where it is now. This is entirely wrong, and it defies logic that the Lord would speak out his words, have them placed in one spot, and then decide to move them later. The word of God is fixed and it's unchanging. Therefore, there is a reason why they are placed right here. It is true that the words themselves may have been spoken before the instructions of the intervening chapters, but the issue of where they would then be placed was carefully and methodically made by the Lord, and it has never changed since. What needs to be considered first is why have we gone through all of the subsequent passages in detail before coming back to the statement tying it to the death of Aaron's sons? 
immediately after their death came the failure of Aaron and his remaining sons to properly handle the sin offering of the people. This was followed up with the dietary laws of Israel. After this was a passage on the requirements of purification after childbirth. Next came those lengthy laws concerning leprosy and bodily discharges. Woohoo! We loved that, didn't we? All of these dealt in some way with purification and sacrifices of some sort for any infractions which occurred or for the evidence of impurity. What becomes manifest immediately is that there would be instances where the people failed to meet the requirements which had been set out before them. For the priests, it was perfectly seen that the ordination process itself had not perfected them. If the priests of the law were tainted with sin, as was fully evident, then their mediation would be tainted as well. Thus, there would be the need for, begins, grace, thank you. By the law is the knowledge of sin. But the law can never take away sin. And thus, an atonement or covering of the sins of the people was still needed. The day of atonement is this day. It is a day of grace upon a tainted and undeserving people. They had agreed to the covenant, but in their imperfection, the laws of the covenant demonstrated to them that they were unable to meet the very demands that it contained. And because of this, the Day of Atonement instructions are a necessary follow-up to the laws of purification and sacrifice of the preceding 15 chapters. It is given us as an all-encompassing annual addition to these to provide atonement, expiation, and reconciliation, which was obviously needed based on the fallen state of the priests and the people. The scholars at Cambridge, which are usually very, very liberal, and I hate to cite them, rightly state this concerning this most holy day, so I decided to quote them. They said, Annually, there gathered over the camp and over the sanctuary, as situated in the midst of the camp, a mass of defilement arising in part from sins, whose guilt had not been removed by the punishment of the offenders, and in part from uncleanness, which had not been cleansed by sacrifices and the prescribed ceremonial rites. Annually, this defilement had to be atoned for or covered away from the sight of God. As I said in the introduction, the Day of Atonement is also a feast of the Lord. Not mentioned in this chapter, but which is detailed in Leviticus chapter 23, is that it is mandated to be held on the 10th day of the 7th month of the year, which is in the fall time. It preceded the Feast of Sukkot, or Tabernacles, which began on the 15th day of the 7th month. Sukkot makes its own picture, that of God dwelling with man, residing with them in a tabernacle. This was not possible unless the people were first atoned for. And so this solemn feast was held annually to prepare them for the time of joyous pilgrim feast known as Sukkot. Verse 2, And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place. The words here tie directly back to those of verse 1. The verse noted that Aaron's two sons had died when they offered profane fire before the Lord. Now Aaron is being warned against making the same error as his sons. This hints to us, just as the warning against drinking wine when going into the tent of meeting, that this is one of the errors of the sons. They went where they were not authorized, with fire which was profane, in a condition which was inappropriate, and they died because of it. The warning to Aaron is given to ensure that none of these offenses will occur again. I need to remind you that in type and picture, Aaron prefigures Christ, the true high priest, 
Jesus. The term HaKodesh, or the holy here, is referring to the most holy place. This is seen with the next words. Verse 2 continues, inside the veil. Mebet la paroket. Within the veil. This veil is that which separated the holy place from the most holy place. It was adorned with cherubim, warning any and all that access was denied. Just as cherubim were placed at the entrance to the Garden of Eden where man once dwelt with the Lord in order to prohibit entrance there, so these were sewn into the veil to warn against entering into the presence of the Lord. The word paroket or veil comes from the word perek, which means cruelty or rigor. That then comes from an unused root, meaning to break apart or to fracture. There is a fracture between God and man, which is seen in this veil. Access through this veil into the presence of the Lord is not authorized for any, even Israel's high priest, except as will be specified by the Lord. Now, before we go on, however, there is one noted exception. His name is Moses. He was allowed unrestricted access in order to receive the law of the Lord directly from the Lord. This does not change with the institution of the Aaronic priesthood, as can be inferred from Numbers chapter 7 with these words. Now when Moses went into the tabernacle of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice of one speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim. Thus he spoke to him. As Aaron is typical of Christ, so we saw in the Exodus sermons that the veil is also a type of Christ. It pictures his body, as is explicitly stated in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, the paroket, that is his flesh. The veil only pictured Christ's flesh. So when he died on the cross, what happened? The veil was rent. His body was rent. Access back to God was restored for us. We're no longer under the old covenant. We now have a new and much better hope, which is found in Jesus Christ. Verse 2 continues, before the mercy seat. El pene ha kaporet. Before the face of the mercy seat. The kaporet, or mercy seat, is identical in meaning to kofer, which means a cover. But in this case, it indicates a satisfaction. This comes from the word kafar, which in this situation means to appease or to satisfy. John Lang describes its purpose. He says, the mercy seat, the kaporet, as a symbol of God's gracious willingness to accept expiation. That's a word which means to take away sins, to expiate. Expiation is such a fulfillment of his general will as covers and removes the demands imposed by the law or the special will on account of guilt. As an interesting note, the word for veil and the word for mercy seat are paroket and kaporet. They're spelled with the same letters, but the letter kaf, which means to open or to allow, moves from being the third letter to being the first letter. In Hebrew, it's represented by an open palm. There is a veil which divides man from the presence of God. And then there is the mercy seat, which reconciles man to God as he opens his hand and allows his mercy to be extended. This mercy seat is the place where sins of the people are to be dealt with during these rituals. An important point to state now and to remember later concerning this kaporet is that the Greek translation of the Old Testament translates this word as hilisterion. As we saw in the Exodus sermons, the mercy seat pictures Christ. 
the place of propitiation for our sins. Paul explicitly states this in Romans chapter 3. He says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, a hilasterion by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. There Paul uses the same word, hilasterion, which the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses for mercy seat. He says that Christ is our mercy seat. We could stop right there and we could say, I know that the day of atonement is fulfilled. That's all you need to know. He is our atonement. Paul says it explicitly in the New Testament, feast fulfilled, sermon over, let's go home. Now, we'll continue on, but understand that this is a fulfilled feast of the Lord. Verse 2 continues, which is on the ark. Asher al-Haron, which is on the ark. As we saw in Exodus 25, every single detail of the ark points to Christ. It pictures his body, his divine human nature, the presentation of him in the Gospels and throughout both Testaments of the Bible and so on. In all ways and in every minute detail, it pictures Christ, who is the embodiment of the law, which was carefully placed inside the ark and then covered with the mercy seat. If you didn't see those sermons, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and watch them and you will not believe how many pictures of Christ are in those few passages. You will not believe it. Verse 2 continues, lest he die. The warning here is given to Aaron directly. Though a type of Christ, he is not Christ. In his sinful humanity, he could not enter the presence of the Lord without carefully following the set rituals which prefigure the very work of Christ. Verse 2 continues, for I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. There are two views as to what these words mean. The first is that the Lord would appear in the cloud of incense, which is noted in verse 13. The second is that the Lord would appear in the cloud above the mercy seat, just as he appeared in the cloud elsewhere several times already, such as above the tent of meeting or up on Mount Sinai. It's hard to be dogmatic either way, but the verse from Numbers that I cited earlier concerning Moses hearing the voice of the Lord from above the mercy seat says nothing about a cloud. But one way or another, Aaron was required to obscure the scene with his own cloud of incense. That's coming soon to a verse near you. Verse 3, thus Aaron shall come into the holy place. Some of the sacrifices, offerings, garments, and washings that will be mentioned here will actually be detailed later. The reason why they're mentioned now is because of the words, thus Aaron shall come into the holy place. He had just been told that he could not come at any time he wished. Now he is being instructed on what he needed to do in order to come in when required. Verse 3 continues, with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering. The Hebrew here actually reads, with a bull, son of the herd, for a sin offering. Verse 14 shows that only the blood of the bull is brought in. Thus it forms a synecdoche. Anybody know what a synecdoche is? A synecdoche is a word which stands for something else. When we say Hollywood, we think of what? The movie industry. When we say Washington, we think of what? The government. Yeah, swine, yes. We think of the U.S. government and swine. There you go. But when we say the blood here, it is a synecdoche, meaning the bull itself. The blood stands for the bull. As the life is in the blood and as the blood has been drained and presented before the Lord, it is proof of death. The bull is for his sin. This means that Aaron is a man who bears sin. 
Thus the bull is typical of Christ, to whom his sin as the high priest will be transferred. The sacrifice stands for the man. The ritual for this bull will be detailed in verses 11 through 14 and in 27 and 28. Verse 11 tells us that the sacrifice of the bull, however, is not only for Aaron, but for himself and for his house. The word par or bull comes from parar, which carries the meaning of defeat or make void. As the bull is the substitute, it is typical of Christ who defeated the devil, making void that which the devil had wrought, meaning sin in man. Aaron had sin, the sin is transferred to an innocent, and then it is disposed of, and the same carries through with his household forever. This is reflected in the words of 2 Corinthians. It says there in chapter 5, verse 21, For he made him, meaning Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ became sin. Aaron places his hands on the head of a bull, and that bull takes his sin. Verse 3 continues, and of a ram as a burnt offering. The ram sacrifice of the priestly burnt offering will be conducted at the same time with that of the burnt offering for the people noted in verse 5. This will occur in verse 24. The burnt offering, as we've seen from the minute detail for the burnt offering back in chapter 1, is as a life wholly dedicated to God. These burnt offerings are typical of Christ whose life was lived perfectly before God, fulfilling God's will, meaning the law on our behalf. That's stated in Hebrews chapter 10 with these words. Therefore, when he, meaning Jesus, came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings, the ones we're looking at right now, and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. His life is lived holy to God. We are in Christ. Our lives are to be lived holy to God. Verse 4, he shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with the linen turban, he shall be attired. The high priest has four articles of clothing that he is to wear. These are not the regular garments of the priesthood. Rather, they are special, plain white garments for this most holy day. He was to not be elevated above the others by wearing his usually gold-adorned garments, but was to wear simple, priestly garments as if in a state of humiliation. The first is a ketonet bad kodesh, or garment linen holy. This would have been a plain white garment, just like any other priest who, as we have seen, picture the saints who are clothed in fine linen, clean and white. It is reflective then of a sinless state, humble, holy, and pure. It then notes, or, and undergarments linen he shall have next to his flesh. The miknas, or undergarments, are only noted five times, and always in regards to the priests. The final time will be in the book of Ezekiel. It comes from a word which gives the sense of hiding. 
They are specifically noted as for covering of his basar or flesh. The nakedness was covered in order to reflect purity and holiness instead of indecency. This word, miknas, comes from kanas, indicating to gather or to collect. Next, it says, ube avnet bad yach gor, or, and the sash linen shall be girded. This sash is completely plain, unlike the sash of the regular priests, which was woven with fine linen, blue, purple, and scarlet. Instead, he is girded in pure white. And finally, it says, ube misnefet bad yitznof, or, and in turban linen shall he be attired. The turban would also be different from the hats of the regular priests, although it would be pure white as theirs was. It is a distinctive turban reserved for the high priest. We see this in the word translated as attired. It's a word new to scripture. It is the word tsanaf. It is to be seen only here and twice in Isaiah 22 verse 18. It means to wrap or to wind up and thus attired. In essence, the words say something like, in wrappings of linen, he shall be wrapped. Verse 4 continues, these are the holy garments. This statement is given to show that what was just described is what has been decided upon specifically for the Day of Atonement rituals. They have been pre-selected, they have been prepared for this purpose, and they reflect what the Lord has determined is appropriate. They are termed holy. Thus, they are set apart specifically for the high priest to perform his duties. They are pure white, picturing purity. They are without spot, indicating innocence and separation from sin. They are ordinary rather than exalted, indicating humility. And there are four pieces, four being the number of creation. Each of these reflects Christ in his humanity. These garments, each and all, are typical of the coming Christ. The holy tunic reflects the human, sinless nature of Christ's righteousness. The linen trousers signify that Christ hid his divine nature, coming in the likeness of sinful flesh, and yet was without sin. The pure white sash is realized in Isaiah's words about the coming Christ. He says, righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. And finally, the wrapped turban signifies that Christ is literally wrapped in righteousness, it being a part of his very being. In these simple, unadorned white garments, we see Christ's first advent. He set aside his heavenly garments, came to earth in the likeness of man. That's Philippians 2, verse 7. He came in a body specifically prepared for him to conduct his priestly duties. That's Hebrews 10, 5. He was found without spot, indicating his sinless nature. That's 1 Peter 1, 19. And his appearance was otherwise ordinary, indicating humility. That's found in Philippians 2, verse 8. Verse 4 continues. Therefore, he shall wash his body in water and put them on. Only now, after detailing what the high priest would be adorned in, do the actual instructions for the Day of Atonement duties begin. He is to first wash his flesh in water and only then put on his garments. Scholars who understand that what we are looking at in this passage points to Christ have various ideas about what the water signifies. One view is that it speaks of his baptism, which started his earthly ministry. Well, that's not possible because he already had his garments of flesh on. So it's not speaking of that. Another is his being cleared, according to John Gill, acquitted and justified from all sin upon his resurrection from the dead after he had made atonement for it and before his entrance into heaven. Well, that's putting the wagon in front of the horse because he hasn't yet been crucified. And so his resurrection comes much later. It's not picturing that either. 
But we find that rather it is what John wrote about in his first epistle. He said these words in 1 John 5, 6. This is he, speaking of Jesus, who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. Jesus came by water and by blood. It is the water of the womb having not received the sin nature from his father, as all other humans have. He was washed in the water of the womb of life as the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and the power of the highest overshadowed her. He also came by blood, demonstrating his humanity. As the life is in the blood, it therefore makes an apt description of the proof that he was and is fully human. Therefore, the evidence of his birth into the stream of humanity is treated in the conception and natal period signifying by the washing in the water. His physical life and human characteristics are evidenced by his blood, and his deity is evidenced by the work of the Holy Spirit as proclaimed in the gospel accounts. He is thus the perfect, pure, innocent, and yet humble human who came to perform the Father's will in order to be our one true and final atoning sacrifice. The pulpit commentary defines the high priest's movements during the coming rites, beginning with the bathing. This is an appropriate time to list them as those duties are only now beginning in earnest in the account. As I read these, as they're laid out by the pulpit commentary, think of the person and the work of Christ and how what he did fulfills these ancient types. Now, while I'm reading these to you, I want you to know that two of them I have underlined. You're not going to see this, but the people online will see this. I underline number 11 and number 12. And the reason why is because scholars debate over which altar is being spoken of. Some say it's only the altar of incense. Some say it's the altar of burnt offering. And some say it's both. Okay? So I've underlined that so when we get to those verses, you'll know what is correct. But let me read these. One, he bathed. Two, he dressed himself in white holy garments. He bathed. He came through the spirit in the washing of the water of the womb. And then he put on the holy garments of righteousness. He is the sinless God-man. Three, he offered or presented at the door of the tabernacle a bullock for sin, offering for himself and his house. Four, he presented at the same place two goats for a sin offering for the congregation. Five, he cast lots on the two goats, one of which was to be sacrificed, the other to be let go into the wilderness. Six, he sacrificed the bullock. Seven, he passed from the court through the holy place into the holy of holies with a censer and incense and filled the space beyond the veil with a cloud of smoke from the incense. Eight, he returned to the court and taking some of the blood of the bullock passed again within the veil and there sprinkled the blood once on the front of the mercy seat and seven times before it. That's also debated, but we'll get there. Nine, he came out again into the court and killed the goat on which the lot for the sacrifice had fallen. Ten, for the third time he enters the Holy of Holies and went through the same process with the goat's blood as with the bullock's blood. 11. He purified the other part of the tabernacle as he had purified the Holy of Holies by sprinkling with the atoning blood as before and placing some of it on the horns of the altar of incense. And they cite Exodus 30 verse 10 there. 12. He returned to the court and placed the blood of the bullock and goat upon the horns of the altar of burnt sacrifice and sprinkled it seven times. 13. He offered to God the remaining goat, laying his hands upon it, confessing and laying the sins of the people upon its head. 
14, he consigned the goat to a man whose business it was to conduct it to the borders of the wilderness and there release it. 15, he bathed and changed his linen vestments for his commonly worn high priest dress. Now, what do you think that's picturing? He's finished his earthly ministry and he's going back showing his divinity or his deity. Anyway, we'll go on. 16, he sacrificed one after the other. The two rams as a burnt offering for himself and for the people. And 17, he burnt the fat of the sin offerings upon the altar. As you can see, the first two things he did was to bathe and then to dress in holy garments. After that, it goes from that picture of Christ coming in his humanity directly to the sacrificial aspect of his work. His entire life is summed up in the acceptable sacrifices which were presented before the Lord. This then is the Day of Atonement. It is the culmination of the life of Jesus Christ. It was then made into a parable for Israel to see and to hopefully understand. Their eyes beheld the most incredible scene which has ever been viewed by the eyes of man, and they failed to recognize it. Verse 5, and he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering. Instead of the ordinary sin offering for the sin of the people, a bull, which was seen in Leviticus chapter 4, the sin offering on the Day of Atonement is now changed to two shaggy he-goats to meet the atoning and expiatory requirements of this most holy day. These goats and the ram were, as it specifically says, to be from the congregation of Israel. The specificity here demands that we pay attention. A heavenly scene will be worked out in an earthly setting. The sire izim or hairy goat is chosen because, as we have seen numerous times, hair in the Bible denotes awareness, especially an awareness of sin. The word sire means hairy. The word izim means goat, coming from the word azaz, which means to prevail. The first time this word, sayir, or hairy, was used was when speaking of Esau, who is called a hairy man. He pictured fallen Adam, who became aware of his sin through disobedience of the Lord's command. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 3, that Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. In doing this, he condemned sin in the flesh. He prevailed over it. This is the purpose of designating the hairy goats. They picture Christ who came in the likeness of sinful flesh, but who prevailed over it. The reason for there being two of them is yet to be revealed. Verse 5 continues, and one ram as a burnt offering. In this, the burnt offering is elevated to the same status as for that of the high priest. It is an ayil or ram. The word indicates strength. As it is the same animal for the high priest as for the congregation, it carries the same connotation. Christ is the strength of God over the power of sin. After the sacrifice for sin, the burnt offering is as a life dedicated wholly to God. In type, the ram symbolizes Christ as a life having been lived wholly to God. The ram also then pictures a life to be lived wholly to God in Christ. In both, it is Christ and his work which are pictured. A burnt offering, a bull is presented at the altar. It has value, and it could be used for other things. But in presenting this bull, I shall not falter, for in giving it to the Lord, my heart rejoices and sings. For to him is a sweet-smelling aroma, pleasant and nice, and my heart delights in offering such as this. It is a perfect bull, and thus an acceptable sacrifice. It is as if sending to heaven an aromatic kiss." 
Bless the Lord who has accepted my offering. Bless the Lord who has received me because of it. He has accepted from my hand this proffering to him through the bull. My soul I do submit. Our second thought today is the sin offering. It's verses 6 through 10. Verse 6, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering which is for himself and make atonement for himself and for his house. This actually says, And Aaron shall bring near all the sin offering. It is not actually offered yet. This will not take place until verse 11. As I noted earlier, the bull receives the sin of the high priest. As Christ is a high priest without sin, this bull pictures him. It is he who became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Aaron and his house needed atonement just as did all of Israel. Only one without sin could remove it. As the administrators of the law of Moses and as they were sin-filled people, they could not atone for their own sin. Thus Christ had to be brought near to be their atoning sacrifice in order for them to be accepted into the new covenant. Thus in him is a changing of the priesthood. The old is annulled and the new is instituted. This is seen in the memorable words of Hebrews chapter 7, which I've already read you before we started. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. They needed to sacrifice for their sins in order to be cleansed. It's only a picture of the coming Christ, and therefore the old covenant dies with the priesthood of Aaron, and a new covenant is instituted in the blood of Jesus Christ. Unlike the goats of the sin offering, it does not say where this bull comes from, does it? It simply says that it is a sin offering for himself. Regardless of Jewish tradition, the Bible leaves this detail out, and it does it for a reason. It's because Christ said this to the people of Israel. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from and where I am going. The bull has no origination in the passage because Christ is being pictured in the bull. Everything, every word that we read in this book called the Holy Bible points to Jesus Christ. And yet we give life application sermons about how to get through tomorrow. It's insane. We need to know why these things happen. And we will get through tomorrow because we understand the intricacy of what God has done for us. Our faith can be firm. Our footing can be sure because of what Christ has done when we understand it. Christ came from God and he was returning to God. But he had a date of destiny with the cross of Calvary first. The concept of the bull and the cross actually finds its source in the very first sentence of the Bible. Each Hebrew letter has its own meaning and makes its own picture. The seven words which open the Bible are Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamayim ve'et ha'aretz. The middle word et is not a word which we translate into English. But it is formed from the letters Aleph and Tav. Aleph is like the Alpha and Tav is like the Omega. The very first sentence of the Bible has the beginning and the end right in there. But there's more. The picture of the Aleph is a bull and it signifies strength, power, and leader. The picture of the Tav is actually a cross and it signifies a mark, signal, or monument. The high priest's atoning sacrifice is seen in this word, a bull and a cross, power reflected in the sign. The thought of this verse is perfectly reflected in the words of Hebrews chapter 7. 
Aaron had to sacrifice for himself, but that sacrifice was only ultimately looking forward to Jesus Christ. Here's what it says in Hebrews 7. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses, but the word of oath, which came after the law, appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Verse 7, he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Two goats which came from the congregation of Israel. Remember, he just said nobody knows where he comes, signifying the high priest, but the two goats were specified as coming from the congregation of Israel. And we all know where Jesus came from, from the congregation of Israel. They're brought forward next and presented before the Lord at the door of the tent of meeting, meaning at the altar of burnt sacrifice. The word for present here is actually different than the words used in verses 6 and 9. Here the word is amad, or stand. It literally says, and have them stand before the Lord. What this means then is that the two goats would be facing to the west, towards the tent of meeting, where the Lord's presence was. Whatever difference there was between the animals, even if nobody else could tell it, it could be discerned by the Lord. The two goats were, according to Jewish tradition, which I don't like to cite, but I'm citing it for a reason, were to be of the same size, color, and value and as nearly alike in every way as possible. Despite being a tradition, it is correct that they were identical, as can be inferred from the next words. Verse 8, Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats. Venatan aharon gorolot. And shall give Aaron on the two goats lots. The two goats, identical in nature, character, and looks, have lots cast over them. What must be said right here is that there is no mistake in the casting of lots. The Bible says elsewhere in Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. This is important because of what these two goats picture. There is no possible mistake in the selection process. Verse 8 continues, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Goral echad la Yehovah ve goral echad la Azazel. One lot for Yehovah and one lot for Azazel. There are a multitude of commentaries on what these words mean. The first half is plain and simple to understand. One lot is la Yehovah or for Yehovah. It is an animal which will be made as an offering to the Lord on behalf of the sin of the people. It's the second half of the clause which is a bit more than complicated as one sorts through opinions. It says, la Azazel, or literally, for Azazel. The question is, what is Azazel? It's a word used only four times in all of Scripture, and guess what? All four are in this chapter. (laughs) Further, all four are formed with the prefix la, or for As one goat is for Jehovah, it implies that the other goat is also for a personal being, for Azazel, just as the Lord is a personal being. As this is a divine scene which is played out in human history and which points to the work of Christ, this is correct. There is a personal being to whom the sin is transferred, but it cannot be Christ as Christ is the Lord, Jehovah. 
But the goat itself is a picture of Christ who bears the sin, which is for Azazel. This goat will have the sins of the people confessed over it. And that goat was to be sent into an uninhabited land, bearing all the iniquities of the people, carrying those sins to Azazel. There's only one acceptable meaning of Azazel. It is a being placed in direct opposition to the Lord in this verse, and thus it is Satan. The goat pictures Christ, but the goat is bearing sins for Azazel. It is the goat of complete removal. And this is going to be explained further later, so just make sure you watch the next sermons. Verse 9, And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. The goat which is for the Lord is to be offered as a sin offering. This is confirmed through the rest of Scripture where Christ is noted as our sin offering. He bore our sin upon himself, and the sin was purged from us through him. That is obvious and without any controversy. This goat shall die for the sins of the people. Verse 10 finishes with, But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. This final verse of the day says that the goat which is for Azazel is to be Yaomad Chai Lifne Yehovah, or stood alive before the Lord. He is not presented to the Lord, he is stood alive before him. It then next says, Lechafer Alav, to make atonement for it. The Hebrew here is very obscure, but what it is saying is that it has been placed before the Lord in order that it might be fitted for the sacred purposes it was designed to fulfill. That's John Lang's commentary. Finally, it then says, Le Salah Oto La Azazel Ha Mid Bara, to send it for Azazel into the wilderness. The Hebrew wording makes absolutely no sense at all if Azazel is translated as scapegoat in this verse. It would then literally say to send the goat for the scapegoat into the wilderness. For this reason, the translators amend the wording to say as the scapegoat. But this then would not match what it says in verse 8. It is the same term used four times and all have the same meaning. La Azazel, for Azazel. Though not a popular interpretation as a meaning for Azazel among many, the pictures which are being developed demand that though this goat pictures Christ, he is carrying away the sins of man, la Azazel, or for Azazel, meaning Satan. This will become evident in the verses ahead as the pictures are explained. For now, simply tuck the information away, and when the chapter is done, you can make your final determination if you feel that's right or not. One thing to consider is that Christ has fulfilled each and every picture thus far in this chapter and in all of Scripture. In Scripture, he is called our sin offering. He's called our propitiation. He's called our mercy seat. He's called our guilt offering and so on and so on. But he is never called our Azazel, nor is he called our scapegoat. That has to be inserted into our thoughts, and it does not fit the pictures which are being developed. He is our sin bearer. Until we get through with this chapter, let's just keep looking for Christ and his fulfillment of what's happening. In the end, the Bible is revealing to us a picture of the redemption of man and how that comes about. If you've never called on Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are not redeemed. Your life still belongs to the devil and your sins have not been carried away. They remain with you still. Only Christ can atone for them by being your sin offering and your sin bearer. 
I would appeal to you today to call out to him and to allow him to cleanse you from all unrighteousness through the work that he accomplished so very long ago. The time is short and his return is near. Don't wait. Don't be left behind, but call on Christ. Be reconciled to God and be assured that there is a marvelous heavenly home prepared for you if you do so. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let me tell you very quickly, the Bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. It goes on to say that the wages of sin is death. We inherited sin from our father. That's the picture of circumcision. They circumcised the male organ saying, I'm cutting sin in man. It's only fulfilled in Christ who had no human father, which we talked about earlier in the sermon. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. There are two types of death which are reflected in the pages of the Bible. The first is physical death. That's where we physically wear out and we die. The other is spiritual death. We're born with the first. We are born spiritually dead. Jesus confirms that in John 3, 18. And if you don't get the spiritual death corrected before your physical death, you will remain spiritually dead for all eternity. You will be cast from the presence of God and you will be in a place where you do not want to be. But that spiritual death can be corrected. That's what Jesus speaks about in John chapter 3, being born of the Spirit, being born again. And it comes by demonstrating faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done. Paul says in the book of Romans, but, that's that giant contrasting word that we find in scripture. This is here, this is here. The but says, but, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. And then he tells us the difficult, difficult thing that we have to do. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Why is it difficult? Because we all don't want to admit that we're sinners and we can't work our way to heaven. But that is what the Bible says, is that we cannot work our way to heaven. Think it through. We're finite. We're in time. We're moving forward. The sin is behind us. We can't go back and undo it there. And God is infinite. He's outside of time. And so we can work forever and forever. We can infinitely work and never make it back to our heavenly father. But Christ can because he is the God man. He can put his finite hand on finite you, and he can put his infinite hand on his glorious heavenly father, and he can say, I am the bridge back to him for you. If you just call on him, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He did it for you. Please acknowledge Christ today. Be reconciled to God through his shed blood, and you'll be on the happy road off to heaven's paradise someday, pretty soon, I think. Our closing verse today comes from Hebrews chapter 10. A lot of Hebrews in here, right? It's the book of Leviticus, right? For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then, would they not have ceased to be offered? What a logical question. Why am I doing this? I did this last year. Because you're still not perfect. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. It was a temporary institution looking forward to something much, much more glorious. Next week is Leviticus 16, 11 through 22. It is sure, a firm pronouncement, you will say, woohoo. It's entitled Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Part two. There you go, part two. That'll be our 28th Leviticus sermon. All right. 
And I'll tell you this, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and he can purify you completely and holy. So follow him and trust him and he'll do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? I've got the biggest scrape in my throat today. Oh, it is, no. I can hardly breathe, but I'm going to get you through this poem and then we're going to take uh, communion. It's entitled Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of Aaron's two sons, when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died. Yes, Nadav and Avihu, these were the ones. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come by and by at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat on which is the ark, lest he die. For I will appear above the mercy seat in the cloud. Therefore, he shall only enter when I say he is allowed. Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. Such shall be the suitable proffering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with the linen turban attired shall he be. These are holy garments he is to don. Therefore, he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. As to you, I tell, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, only he, and make atonement for himself and for his house. This is such as it shall be. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, according to this word. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats. Take note. One lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offered as a sin offering, as to you I do now tell. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. So these instructions I now to you submit. Lord God, you have sent Jesus to atone for sin. We thank you for doing what we could not do. Through him, new life can begin. And so, O oh God, we call out through him to you. Hear our cry for mercy upon sinners such as us. Know that we trust in your word and your power to save. We are freed from sin's bondage through Jesus. It was for us that his precious life you gave. Hallelujah to you, O oh God, our voices we raise. Hallelujah to you, O God, we give all of our praise. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for what this signifies. It's an obscure passage that so many people have never read, and even reading it, it's hard to understand. But when we just think of Christ and when we look for Christ, there he is on every single word. He's there showing us the greatness of what you did for us through him. You gave us grace, unlimited grace, through the shed blood of our Lord Thank you that though we are fallen and sinful, represented by the hairy goats, he came in the likeness of sinful man to redeem us from our sin. Thank you that that happened, and thank you that we can trust in it, that it is a sure and absolute path back to your wonderful presence. And we thank you that the book of Hebrews says that we can enter the throne of grace boldly. We can come right up in your presence boldly. But it is true that we should probably be on our face once we get there because of your holiness. And we can come there and we can petition you and ask you for the things that are on our heart. And certainly we pray for our brother Paul today, who is still struggling with his many afflictions. 
and we would pray that you would continue to help him to get better. And we pray for Elaine, who has got to administer these shots to him, and she's been so very patient during his illness. So we pray for this, and we also pray for all the others that are sick or having difficulties, trials, troubles, finances, all these issues that are uh, wearing them down. We would pray that you would relieve them. And Lord, we certainly pray for our dear friends here, Bill and Patty, and their trip off to... uh, Arizona, is it? Yes, Arizona. We pray that you will be with them, that you will guide them, that you will lead them, and that they will be kept free from anything that would harm their witness and their testimony for you, that they would be fully funded in this project very soon, and we would pray that you would be glorified through what they do, through the work of their hands. So yes, Lord, establish the work of their hands for them. And we pray this in the beautiful and exalted name of our dear Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen.